Philippians 3.13, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take as such a view of things. And if on some points you think differently, that God, that too God will make clear to you, only let us live up to what you have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, Even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. (laughs) But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. What I want to do is speak to you this morning about eagerly awaiting a Savior from heaven who will, as the passage says, transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. And the assumption that I'm operating um, under this morning is that we don't do that very much. The, The whole eagerly anticipating, consciously, frequently anticipating the return of our Savior to the earth. We don't do that very well. Why is it so difficult to anticipate Christ? Three things. Number one, nobody knows when that's going to happen. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 that the date and time are not even known by the angels of God in heaven. You you and I have a difficult time thinking about something that we put on our calendars for a a month from now. How How do you think about something that you can't put on your calendar at all? I mean, the return of Jesus probably isn't going to happen in our lifetimes. I would love to be proven wrong, but it's probably not going to happen that way. And it might not happen for 10 generations afterwards, even 100 generations. So focusing on things that are that open-ended are very difficult for us to do. Number two, one of my kids told me this, this week, Dad, I want Jesus to return when I'm 70. Yeah, when you're when you're 70, why? Well, you don't have anything to look forward to anymore, Dad. <laughs> when you're 70, yeah. My child said, "There's a whole lot of life I still want to live. There's a lot that I still want to accomplish. So if, if Jesus will you know, delay things for another 60 years, it's kind of hard to look forward to something that you don't want to even occur yet. Maybe that's why." Or number three, we don't eagerly anticipate the return of Jesus Christ because we are busy thinking about other things, much of, much of which is utterly trivial and inane. 
But living in the information world that we do, you can't help it. I mean, it's, it's not as though you can help getting all this the stuff and facts. I mean, you can't even watch ESPN without knowing the scores of 40 or 50 other uh, sports that took place around the world. It, you can't get on the World Wide Web without being inundated with lots and lots of new information. None of us, very few of us, have cultivated the habit of spiritual retreat. The habit of mentally just taking a break, scheduling a time to think and meditate on spiritual things, unseen things. So we don't anticipate the return of Christ because we're busy thinking about lots of things that don't deserve our mental attention and energy, but nevertheless, we can't help it. Those are three reasons. I bet you could add to those reasons. When I read a passage like this, what I feel burdened about is is not even so much that you aren't eagerly anticipating the return of Jesus, but your kids aren't. Because if the parents aren't, the kids aren't. That's just how it goes. If you're not thinking about it, if you're not talking about it, except on Easter Sunday... I mean, really, when was the last time you had a spirited conversation about the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth and return of Jesus? We don't talk about that with our friends, with our Christian friends, with our spouses. We don't talk about it. We don't think about it. And maybe we've been actually conditioned to think about it when we do think about it in entirely the wrong ways. Let me give you a suggestion about that. I came across a psychology experiment that was conducted at Cornell University this past year. They ran a series of tests, and they asked young men and women to think about a purchase they intended to make in the very near future and to rate their sense of anticipation for that purchase. What it is that you you want to buy, and how excited are you about that? So, They sent text messages to the subjects, the test subjects, and they would ask them throughout the day, what are you thinking about and how excited are you? The the future purchases fell into two different categories. One, material goods such as a new laptop, new clothing, new electronics, material goods, and number two, experiences like concert tickets, ski lift passes, and trips. Which of those two categories do you think people experienced more anticipatory excitement in waiting for? The MacBook Air purchases or the ski vacationers? What do you get more excited about? A new iPod or a concert ticket? And every single time, the answer was the same. It's experiences and not stuff that people really look forward to. Anticipated experiences infuse the mind with far more excitement than even really great anticipated stuff. Now, can I point to a verse in the Bible that teaches that conclusion? Probably not. But does it seem as though God has created our, our minds and our psyches that way? Probably so. And I think that it's very instructive for us when we think about heaven. Because you and I, especially if we grew up in certain 
places in the church were taught that you know, heaven is about me going to inhabit my mansion in the sky. Right? Heaven is about streets paid with gold and my name being inscribed in one of the bricks. Heaven is about the cloud that I will be perched upon. And, you know, all, if you think about it, go back. Listen to what you were taught. Much of heaven was sold to you in, in terms of a personal possession or a commodity that you obtain. But, of course, that's not the way the Bible talks about heaven. The Bible usually describes it to us much more in terms of a shared experience of corporate joy. It describes it to us in terms of a feast. It describes it it to us in terms of a party. It's a shared experience of of festivity. It's the greatest party that's ever been had. Surely, if we start to think about it and talk about it with each other that way, that'll have to elicit some greater excitement, won't it? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine yourself sitting at a banquet table, like uh, a great stately, thick oak banquet table that extends down a hallway beyond, beyond where you could possibly see. Billions and billions and billions of people seated with you at a banqueting table, And you can't see him near the end of the table, but there's maybe a big screen of of, of Moses as he stands up at at the head of the table, and he proposes a toast to the Lord. And he says, here's to our great God who brought us through the waters of the Red Sea on dry ground. And a million voices scream, hear, hear. Here's to our great God. Uh, I propose a toast to him who brought us into a land filled with milk and honey. And on and on, Moses goes, recounting the faithfulness of God to him and his generations. And billions of glasses clink together in a ruckus of praise and a a hearty hear, hear. Then the great patriarch Abraham rises to address the assembly. He says, my friends, let me tell you a story. Grandfather great-grandfather, the father of many nations, grandfather Abraham, goes on to tell story after story, uh, a first-person narration of what it was like for him to take his son Isaac up onto Mount Moriah. And you, like, get to see, what is that, Genesis 21 or 22? You get to see Genesis 21 through through Abraham's eyes. And he goes on like a great-grandfather and tells story, riveting story after story. Many of the stories that we haven't even heard yet, all of them expressing joy in God's great faithfulness. But this is a table of several billion people, and the stories keep going on down the line. Story after story, toast after toast, spontaneous poem and spontaneous song. It keeps moving down the line as people whom you have never seen before, uh, you've never met, they stand up and tell of God's great faithfulness to them as sinners. For the first million years after the resurrection, we basically just drink wine or grape juice, if the Southern Baptists are are right. And I can say that because... I was, I was one, my dad's one. We drink wine for a million years and we tell stories of great faithfulness and we laugh and we dance. 
we should talk about the return of Jesus that way, shouldn't we? Let's go back to verse 19. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from their heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I've said this a bunch to you before, but I think it bears repeating. The word heaven in the Bible usually refers to three different things. Heaven is the sky above, it's space, it's the moon and the stars and all of that. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's heaven. Number two, heaven refers to the, the realm of God's present domain. Whatever dimension that is, wherever that is, wherever is the heavenly throne room that's depicted for us in the book of Revelation, where Jesus is, where the departed saints are, that's, that's heaven. That's what Paul's talking about here because he says that Jesus will come from heaven, from that realm where he presently dwells. And then, then number three, heaven in the Bible refers to the recreation of the universe which will take place at his return, when there is a resurrection and we have new bodies and everything has a new body, so to speak, including this planet. Um, On Monday, we decided to watch the BBC version of Northanger Abbey. Again, we're big Jane Austen fans. And if you remember the story, there's this great dance scene that takes place between Catherine and and Mr. Tilney. It's, you know, Jane Austen, she was a big dancer as a, as a young girl, and like every single Jane Austen novel, all of her heroines always have a great dance scene. It's, it's, it's beautiful. This, this one takes place in the grand ballroom in Bath, the city of Bath. The men line up in their, their line. They're facing the women. The women are lined up in, in front of the men. And it's a slow dance. The it's, it's one of those, like, you mosey to the center, and then you mosey back, and you twirl around other people standing beside you. And it's slow enough that they can have a great conversation. But if you were a young English country girl, and you're reading this in 1815 for the first time, and you hear about all of the, the regalia, the pomp, the pageantry, uh, the, the love that's that's spoken in this story between Catherine and Mr. Tilney. I mean, it's, it's what would make a girl's heart flutter. It was written at a time when most Englishmen and women spent the majority of their lives indoors. You didn't get out very much. You certainly didn't get out to the ballroom very much. It was, it was thrilling on a, on a level that we can... It's, it's hard for me to describe. The, the, the world of dance and the beauty and the regalia. Well, that was Monday. Then on Tuesday, the, the girls decided to watch the movie Unbroken. And the book was way better than the movie, even though I haven't seen the movie. I know the book was better, better than the movie because they're always better than the movie. Um, I'm not a movie person, but they decided to watch Unbroken. I walked in right at the beginning where Louis Zamperini is running the 400. I think he was running it for Compton High school. He was either he was running it for in his high school days or his college days, 
And every muscle in his body is straining towards the finish line as he comes around that last turn. And he you know, throws his head back. And they cut to his mom and dad as they're watching. And the parents are in that position of just tense, like, ah, tense excitement and nervous excitement as they're watching their son make it towards, towards the finish line. And the dad is like, yes, that's my boy. I, he's going to win. And every time I see the dad get teary-eyed about the son who's going to win. I get teary-eyed about this. Some of you dads do it too. Where am I going with all of that? Here's a way to get excited about the, the return of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Normally, what we do is we look in the mirror and we ask ourselves the question, what is my resurrection body going to look like? What am I going to do? Oh, I'm, I'm going to get rid of my arthritis. I'm going to get rid of my scars. We, we say, oh, what's it, what's it? What's, I find far more thrilling is to look out on you and imagine what it would be like to watch you run uh, freer and faster than you ever have in, in this life. Or, or watch you, ladies, dance. You know, more beautifully uh, regaled than there 's something about seeing the resurrection in each other that is just so powerful and captivating, thinking about Jesus transforming our lowly bodies and us going and dancing and playing, and surely that 's what 's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. Of course, there are going to be dances and games and places to explore. The meaningful work to be done. Uh, it's going to be a new earth. It's not going to be a spirit cloud world. And it's going to be the most thrilling excitement ever when we get to see each other being and doing that. What's tremendously sad to me is how our popular culture has reinforced the notion that, especially to our kids, that heaven's going to be an absolute dragon bore. And there's no reason why they would ever want to go there. If you remember the story of all dogs go to heaven, Charlie, the German shepherd, uh, he gets there and he's like, I don't want to be here. Everything's so predictable here. There, it's, it's a steady 73 degrees Fahrenheit and there are no cats to chase. That's <laughs> what Charlie says. He actually sings a song in All Dogs Go to Heaven Part 2 about how it's too heavenly here. It's too peaceful and paradise-like. So, you know, he... He, uh, he blows the joint and heads back down to earth. You think about other forms of popular culture, like the widow Douglas, as she describes to Huck Finn what heaven, she's, she said all that a body would do there was go around all day with a harp and sing forever and ever. I asked her if she reckoned that Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by a long shot. And I was mighty glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. (laughs) But to think about it, what greater skill could the devil, what what greater idea could he come up with than take what will be the most thrilling thing that's ever happened to human beings and basically tell you from the age of about three or four that it's going to be extremely dull and who cares? Because that's what he's done. I want you as parents to seize 
every opportunity your kids provide you to you know, encourage them to eagerly expect the return of Jesus. You will get a question, if you haven't already, you young parents. Uh, your child will ask you, Mom and Dad, will I, what happens when I die? Will I go to heaven when I die? If you, you say, okay, yes, but, yes, what we call that thing when you die is the intermediate state, is which that's the title that theologians call it. Yes, you will go to heaven. Your soul will go to be with God in the realm in which he presently occupies. You don't want to use any of that language because it's going to confuse them. But there's a greater heaven still to come. How do you communicate that to your children? Well, you tell them this. You say, Johnny or Susie, remember what Boise is like in February? I hate February in this city. (laughs) Love the city. I hate February. Remember what it's like. It is so cold and dreary and inversion-y and gray and cloudy. Well, imagine this. Imagine that your God gave you an airplane ticket to Florida in February. And you were going to fly to the most incredible white sand beach You're going to swim with the dolphins. You're going to play in the sand. You're going to surf for the very first time in your life. You are going to, it's going to be the greatest February of your existence. Doesn't that sound great? The only thing is, to get there, there are no direct flights out of Boise. Even your kids probably know that. I mean, it's a small airport. (laughs) You cannot fly anywhere direct out of Boise. You certainly can't fly to Florida. So in order to get to Florida, you're going to have to stop over somewhere. You're going to stop over in St. Louis, which is great because your grandparents live in St. Louis, or you pick the city. Your cousins are, and your your grandparents and cousins are going to come to the airport and meet you there, and they're going to actually take you back to their house, and you're going to spend some of the best days of your life there in the house in St. Louis until God says the time has come for all of you to go back to the airport and board the flight to Florida because as great as St. Louis is going to be and it's going to be an awesome stop, you know where where you're really going? You're going to the beach. The beach is your final destination. Now, I know that's an imperfect analogy, and and some of you probably are already picking apart the problems with that parable. But, you know, all all metaphors and parables have their weaknesses. Is that the way you could tell it to a child that they would understand? You bet. And and that is what it's going to be kind of like when we die. When we die and... Uh, We go with our souls and we're with Jesus and other Christians, but the full heaven we are looking forward to is when Jesus returns and returns with us so that our souls come with him, are reunited with our bodies at the resurrection, and then we're going to feast, and then we're going to swim with the dolphins. (laughs) Then we're going to enjoy all of it. And that's what you need to communicate to your kids. Okay, the last thing I want to say is that in church history, the return of Jesus Christ has always been associated with what geographical direction? It's always been associated with the east. 
Um, you say, why, did, why has it been that we have always associated it with the East? Well, probably because of Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, where Jesus says that the coming of the Son of Man will be like, uh, just like the, the lightning that shines in the eastern sky. We know, as we study church history, that by as early as the second century, it became the Christian custom to pray facing towards the east. We know that when they started constructing Christian sanctuaries, they did so almost always on an east-west axis, so that this area, you know what this is called? This is the chancel, the pulpit, the communion table. The chancel end of the sanctuary was always on the east, and it became, eventually became known as the, the eastern end. We know that it's long been the custom of Christians that when we bury each other, we bury each other with our feet pointed to the east. Why? Because of the, of the day of the resurrection, the idea being is you don't want to have to turn around to face Jesus. <laughs> when, you, when you stand up and your feet are there, you want to be facing him from, from the get-go. And we also know that one man's east is another man's west. Like when Jesus talked that way, it's, it's not as though he was trying to give us some definitive geologic, uh, geographical GPS coordinates. East, let's say, for instance, he, re- he returns over the Mount of Olives in a, a cloud. Well, then, hey, that's not bad. That's to the east of us. Well, it's to the west of the, our brothers and sisters in China. So looking east is really about a mindset. It's really about a heart, a heart attitude. It means that we are looking to the future and looking for the return of the king. Brothers and sisters, when history as the world knows it no longer exists, and there are no longer any great kings or great wars or great political machines, when there are no more countries left standing, when there are no more dollars lying around, when it's no longer the strong versus the rich, versus the strong versus the weak, rather. But when all that's left is the story of the great God and King, and when all has been made right in the world, and when the, the heroes of the story are the missionaries and the faithful servants of Jesus, the faithful laymen and women, and we hope a few pastors, and when our eyes finally behold him as he truly is, you know that words fail us in that moment. They fail, they utterly fail us in our ability to capture that moment, right? But you also know that is where your heart ought to be. Is there even the slightest doubt inside of you right this minute that my mind and my heart should be anywhere else than right there, at that moment, at that time. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying. We must be as a people, eagerly awaiting the return of our Savior from heaven. Amen. Let's pray. We're going to, yeah, I got a prayer this week. (laughs) Let's pray. Our Father. Our Father in heaven, we recount the words of the Apostle John that all who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. We recount also the words of the Apostle Peter, 
that since we are looking forward to his coming, we are to make every effort to be found spotless, every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, may we make every effort to be spotless and to be pure for that day. May we, through your Holy Spirit's power, become more holy and more generous as a people. We know, Father, without a doubt, that if we could but see that final day, if we could but taste that final wine and hear the laughter and watch the dancing, uh, that would profoundly shape the way that we do the next 24 hours. Surely, Father, we would not live so anxious in this world. Surely we would be more gracious to each other and more generous to a fault. So we, may we, by, the, uh, by your Spirit's power, eagerly anticipate this future. May we speak about it with our children. May we speak about it with our spouses and our friends. In Jesus' name, amen.